Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. This is episode 463 of The Sausage Factory. In this episode, I interviewed David Dio Paquet of Bishop Games and asked them about the design and development of their tower defence MOBA-like hybrid game, Towers of Tharna. Now, I'm very deliberate about saying Towers of Tharna because I have a bit of an apology to make to David and Bishop Games. Because for some reason, I had a bit of a brain fart during this recording and I kept on calling Towers of Thana, Towers of Thanos. I don't know. Something happened to my brain. I was like, I don't even really have any interest in Marvel that much, really. And yet, it just popped into my head. And I kept on calling it that. And I don't know why. I did recover at the end. And David, being the terribly polite fellow that he is, said he just didn't really correct me. He could have done, but he never did. Uh, but I'm trying to, so I deeply, deeply apologise to, to David and Bishop Gaines for, for messing that up. Be that as it may. I hope they accept the apology. What is Towers of Tharna? Well, it's an action-adventure game which uses tower defence and highly tactical play to actually get through each arena, each scenario. It feels like, in some regards, uh, a board game, only in it's working in real time, of course. But there is definitely rock, paper, scissors stuff going on. And we do delve into the concept of placing stationary objects, which are these towers, which objectively are not as dangerous as the other things around to the enemy. Yet the enemy is drawn to these things. Because they're drawn to these smaller objects, you can actually herd them around. You can kite them around the map if you're really clever with it. And it's a fascinating game. And what's also quite interesting is it's not finished. It's not often we do this on the Sausage Factory. We prefer to actually look at games after they are done when we look back on them. But on this occasion, I found Tower of Thana, Towers of Thana, so I should say, so fascinating in its concept i just felt compelled to have bishop games on to talk about its current creation because like i said they are currently working on it so anyway let's listen to me fumble through this episode (laughs) using the wrong name i'm so sorry but yeah towers of thana everyone so if you look it up towers of thana on steam you'll find it not not whatever i was using there. Anyway, just get me out of the hole. Chris, take it away. Hello, David. Hello, Chris. Could you tell us who you are and what you do? Yes, so uh, I'm David. Uh, I'm uh, from Quebec, uh, and I, I'm one of the co-owners of Bishop Games. Uh, I happen to know how to code games, among uh, other things. Uh, we are a very small studio, only six people. So, of course, uh, every one of us does more than one thing. Um, and, uh, yeah, I do interviews sometimes, it seems. So, so it appears. <laughs> this is another one of the things you do in your job. 
Um, we're going to talk about Tales of Thanos uh, in this show, everyone. And I discovered it at PAX East this year and uh, invited the, David and his team onto the show. And here he is. He said, strangely, he said, yes, I know, weird. But uh, before we delve into Tales of Thanos, and really, believe me, we really are, we need to find out a little bit more about David. So, how did you make your start making video games, David? Um, yeah, so uh, uh, like many people, I guess it started with just loving video games as a younger kid, uh, but pretty early on, even as a teenager. Um we eventually had uh, a first computer at home. Uh, I had it a bit later than most of my friends, but uh, when I eventually managed to get my hands on one, uh, I ended up playing a game called Never Winter Nights, uh, which uh, which is a D&D Dungeon and Dragon based kind of role playing game, um, and it came with a with an editor uh, with a game engine basically, and I. I didn't learn much about coding at the, at that time, but I tried. Uh, the biggest hurdle being a language barrier. Uh, at the time, I didn't speak a word of English, uh, only French, and uh, very, very few resources were available in French for that engine. But the f- very few things I was able to play with, uh, they did pique my interest. Uh, and yeah, I was about 14 when I just set my mind to becoming eventually a video game developer. So that's how I got started. Eventually, I went to school to learn programming. Uh, I worked for five years uh, for studios uh, in town in Quebec City. Uh, And uh, in 2014, I started uh, Bishop Games uh, with two of my partners. And we did uh, Lightfall as our first game. And now we are. We just released in early access uh, Towers of Tana. You have indeed. That's why we're here. But not an unusual story, backstory. You find an editing tool and realize that because the premise of that editing tool was to make Dungeons & Dragons modules. That was the point of it. You know, you can make your own adventures because that's what you do in D&D. Trust me, I know. I I play a lot of it to this day. Um, (laughs) Let's move on then to the next question is this. What are your biggest influences right now? Um, so for Towers of Tana, it basically started more about wanting to play a single-player MOBA. Uh, so we we love playing uh, League of Legends uh, and Dota for my for myself. I was more a Dota kind of head uh, <laughs> more than anything um, at one point. And uh, but yeah, it can be a bit toxic if you heard uh, sometimes. Um, and that's basically the premise for Towers of Tana, which is a, a single-player MOBA. So the player ends up placing the towers, uh, you play with the towers, uh, and you face off the waves of enemies that come at you. Next question. What video game developer do you admire most and why? Yeah, I think I would have to to uh, point at the guys at the Sabotage, who just launched the Sea of Stars. Um, they, are, they happen to be friends that we, we worked to, I worked with a couple of them, uh, when, back when I was at bigger studios in town. Uh, and yeah, so they, they happened to be from Quebec as well. And they had an amazing journey. 
uh, first with the with the messenger and now with Sea of Stars, uh, and they are amazing people that are have been able to keep their heads on their shoulders. So yeah, it's always uh, yeah. I, I I think a lot of developers uh, uh, look up to them, uh, not just in town. I, I assume internationally as well. Yes, we've had them on the show to talk about Messenger. So uh, yeah. a remarkable game. But Sea of Stars is an absolute triumph. Okay, so now we're going to ask the last question first off. I think you started asking, answering this earlier. But let's, let's embellish this. Let's expand a little bit more. What are you playing right now, David? Oh, yeah, right now. So um, I'm basically... Uh, at the, well, it's not the first time, but I went through a couple of playthroughs of XCOM, uh, which is certainly a game that uh, I enjoy and that does actually inspire us as well for Towers of Tanner. Uh, but it's more like a, for a second phase of development. Maybe we can talk a bit more about that later. Um, I played also a fair amount of uh, Crusader Kings, uh, which is uh, a different kind of uh, of experience, it's not for everyone, but uh, yeah, I'm one of those who, who went too deep into that one. Um, yeah, and uh, on a regular basis, uh, Rocket League is a, it's a good place for me to just uh, relax. Rocket League, the game that keeps on giving yeah. and very straightforward. Actually, no, that's not true, it isn't straightforward. That's what makes it great. So <laughs> which is why we're here to talk about a game that isn't straightforward at all, because we're going to delve deep into Towers of Thanos. David, could you tell us in your own words, what is it? Um, yeah, uh, to put it simply, uh, it's a single-player MOBA uh, in which uh, you will also play a bit like a tower defense kind of game. So that's the very short answer to this. Yes. So you have a variety of arenas. and You do play, you do have an avatar on the screen which you directly control. Um, What you don't have is any creatures on your side, at least initially. I don't know. I'm not going to go there. But um, you basically are kind of on your own with some towers that can have either static or ones you create by yourself. And those things, the ones you create by yourself are kind of miniature versions of the ones that are static, and they can trigger very powerful effects, abilities, provided they're suitably charged and not exploded. Um, Meanwhile, there are creepers. Hey, I know the terminology. That are spawning from various parts on the map, which are, well, in the the game I've played, is these big worm things that pop out 
and um, yeah. it is your role to remove said worm creatures to make the realm safe. And the the juggling with this, we're gonna. I do need to expand on this, David, before we go into my question questions. Um, is the juggling is is the risk reward model? Do you let one of your towers defend itself? You can do something. You can move around the map. You can even do um, transport yourself from one place to another almost instantaneously, but not quite because that would be weird. But, you know, you, you have to judge what do, what what do I need to do here? Do I need to focus, continue to focus my attacks on this spawn point or do I need to go and defend that tower, which is which is more important? Um, and it's, a, it's an interesting um, model that you created. And you are very, very well informed in this game. The one thing about Towers of Thanos does, tells you exactly what's going on. Sometimes for the worse, yeah. but never mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, so the game is very much about, I think, a bit too much to do all at once. Uh, you have, uh, so you will usually have uh, more than one front coming at you, right? You have this big uh, blue core that you want to defend at the center of the map. Uh, and you will have wave of enemies coming at the core from different directions all at once. Uh, but you as a player, like a bit like most MOBAs, uh, you can be really at only one place at a time, right? So what you want to do is to uh, stop one of those fronts somehow, and then you can go to the other side and take care of that other front. And so the way you do this is that you use your towers. So your towers will be able to hold on to one front for a little while, not too long. Uh, so don't take too much of your time. And while that front is being held, uh, you can go and attack on the other side. Uh, you beat up the ways of enemies that come and you eventually reach that worm, uh, which is spawning all these waves. Uh, you want to uh, get rid of that worm and then you can come back to the core. Hopefully you did all of that uh, before the waves of enemies took over your towers, uh, and then you can keep on pushing uh, until you're you're done. Uh, that's one of the modes, uh, anyways, uh, of the game. It's that's one of the modes. One. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, that's, that's certainly one way of doing it. Anyway, because <laughs> the, <laughs> the worms are irritating have ability to shield themselves. Very annoying, but, uh, you know, don't wanna, it's not really a spoiler, everyone. You discover that relatively early. Oh, great. Now I've got to kill these things to stop them from... Yeah, never mind. So, first design question, now that's out of the way. The towers that the player places down, they're limited in number, everyone. You can't have an infinite number. That would be ridiculous. So you, you, you have a limited like collection, maybe four or five. Depends on the tower and your own abilities as you build up. But um, that is kind of a magnet for the creepers to attack. They will attack yeah. that tower. It's much smaller than the regular ones, but they will go for it more than anything else. It's like a moth to a flame. Why? Because ultimately these towers are not nearly as powerful as the stationary ones. And yet the creatures, the ones, the enemies that the worm spawns, will do everything to destroy the smaller ones, which is a bit of a conceit because they're not as powerful Mm -hmm. as the big ones. I can see why you're doing it, but I want you to talk me through why this is and how did this come about. 
Yes, so we can frame the question a bit uh, differently. So you, mm -hmm. if you notice the these smaller towers, they will also uh, attract the enemies uh, more than they will attract. Then, so the enemies will attack this small tower before they will go to attack your core, basically, right? Uh, which, which is the entity that you want to protect. And so uh, the idea is to basically give a bit of a chance to the player. Uh, we feel like it would be somewhat unfair if, uh, like, the player is not there, right? You're, you're like busy taking care of something at the other side of the map, and you left that tower to take uh, to protect the the core. It would feel a bit unfair if the enemies just didn't care about that tower and just went around it. Um, so that's why they are attracted to that. Uh, and it's basically the same idea for their, these bigger towers. So, so on the map, there's two types of towers, basically, that are friendly to the player, the ones that the player places uh, themselves. And there's also bigger towers that are much stronger, but they are very much static. Uh, you can't place them back. Once they are destroyed, they are gone for the rest of, of the map. Uh, and when that happens, uh, that can really uh, shift the fight in one direction. Uh, and your disadvantage basically you don't want that tower to fall so it's uh because that bigger tower helps you to keep control of that area of the map so it's basically the same idea so so to to be fair basically for the player because the player could choose uh, and he's actually encouraged to choose uh to try to keep control of that area and one of the ways to do that is to protect that bigger tower even if that bigger tower uh is is powerful uh, it's not invincible uh, and uh, yeah, as you progress through the game, uh, that tower will need a bit of backup as well. Yeah, I, I've used the smaller towers not only to power myself up, but to herd the creatures, to actually yeah. kite them, for want of a better phrase. That's, a, that's another yep. quest phrase. But yeah, kiting uh, the creatures <laughs> so they actually herd them into places. Because it is, like I said, they're attractive. It's very clever because, like I said, the conceit is... Hmm. These aren't very powerful towers. They don't even launch any attacks against well, the base ones you no. put on. Exactly. The others do, and but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, but, yeah, 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 you're correct. The bigger towers, they are, they are competent uh, by themselves. They are able to get rid of of an entire wave, uh, hmm. but they will usually take on some damage. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. One single smaller tower by itself. Uh, it's likely to be overrun by a wave. Uh, if you place two towers, uh, it's like to be uh, easier. And so the towers by the smaller towers by themselves, not that powerful. And like uh, agreeably, a similar thing could be said of the player as well. Uh, so at a at a lesser extent, I would say the player is a bit stronger than a single tower. Um, but you you are quite likely to lose the round, the round uh, if you only play by yourself without the support of your towers. Um, so it's really when the player uh, interacts with the towers that they place that they actually do uh, unleash all the power they have access to. It's also very important to reclaim them after an engagement. <laughs> Otherwise, they will sit there not doing anything because that battle is yeah, won, yeah. and if you don't reclaim them, then you can't spawn any more towers. Trust me, that has happened yep. to me. Oh, yeah, that was fun. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, yeah. Next question. Uh, and, uh, yeah, sorry, that on. specific point, I think, uh, it's something 
we are playing around a bit. Uh, we are not sure exactly how to address that. Uh, so when what, what Chris just said is that when you place a tower on the ground, uh, if it's not destroyed, it will just stay there, right? And if you if you win uh, that that wave, right? If you win against a worm and you destroy that that worm that spawns all the waves, and you yeah. forget your tower behind you, then yeah. you have one less tower to fight on the other side, right? And it's it's not. Uh, so we would probably integrate some kind of mechanics so that the player can reclaim those those uh, towers that are behind you, uh, or find another way to make it easier for them to to get back uh, in their inventory. There might be some kind of spell you could invoke. Probably, <clears throat> yeah, something you can unlock. Maybe, right? I think it's fair to to feel the the sting a little bit that oh, I forgot about those. It's important, and then maybe we give you a bit of a better way to to handle those situations once yeah, you know what you're missing on. Indeed. Otherwise you go running them down and <laughs> collecting all the dead towers that aren't doing anything anymore. Anyway, yeah, yeah. which costs a lot of time, which you do not have. Speaking of statuses, nope. in Tower Thalos there is a health bar. Yeah. It's huge. It's absolutely it takes up a good portion of the screen. I just want to ask, can you talk us through the design of the UI in terms of the status of the player and where they, what they should be doing, where, 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 where their attention should be played because or be put? Because I found oh, yeah. you being so transparent about the player's health was a perfect move because it's so, so easy to forget that. It really is. You, yep. you, and for you to be so prominent and say, look, this is your health bar. This is how alive you are, or not, as the case may be. <laughs> Please pay attention to this, because if you die, it's game over. Yep, uh, if, if you die, it's game over. And actually, if the core at the center uh, reaches zero health, uh, it's also game over. Yeah. Um, and yeah, even if we put that health bar so big on the screen, I mean, it's it's quite big compared to other games, that's for sure. But it, it doesn't take half the screen either. It's quite hard to miss. Um, and really, uh, we are just back from uh, uh, both Gamescom and Pax West. And like at, even then, we just couldn't do anything but realize that it's not enough. Uh, even if the, if the health bar is big, is so big, um, players. And I, I think it's like. It's a consequence of something else we did great, which is we want to make sure that the player is really focused of what's going on in the fight. And it's the game is about uh, like it should, should be challenging because it's hard to keep track of everything else that is not in your face. Uh, so one of those things that you have to keep track of is obviously your health. Uh, your health is somewhat in your face, but uh, it's quite easy to, to lose track of it uh, nonetheless. Uh, there's the health uh, of, of your core, and there's also the health of those bigger towers that you want also to keep track of. Uh, and when these and when all of these entities on the map are being attacked by different waves, you sort of want to be aware of those in your mind, right? There, there's this mini map that helps you out. Um, and yeah, uh, the idea is to have too much information, basically. And not in, like you should feel overwhelmed 
even if I'm not like sending you 100 uh, pop-ups and everything, right? It, it's just like you are trying to keep track of everything in your mind uh, and it's supposed to be hard and then you forget about your health and you die. Um, <laughs> so uh, we found that it was happening a bit too much uh, during the convention. Uh, so maybe we're going a bit too hard early on in the game for new players, right? So it's a bit overwhelming, a, a bit too fast. I mean, you shouldn't die as often on the first level. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that like for a convention, it's fine. So that, that way players can try a second time, right? If, if the people succeed the first level, I think it's not a bad balancing for a convention. Uh, but for the first level of a game that you're going to play uh, at least an hour straight once you just purchased it, uh, yeah, I think we shouldn't, you shouldn't die on the first level. Uh, <laughs> most people shouldn't. Maybe on the second, on the third one. Uh, but yeah, there's a bit too much going on on the first one, so we are likely to split it with something else. But yeah, uh, that's me rambling about health. Yeah, and uh, also I feel like... Um, when the player loses, they should also always understand why, like what, what they did wrong, maybe, or maybe where in which area could they maybe improve, uh, so that when they lose, uh, they f they don't feel like it was random bad luck uh, that made them lose, right? Uh, yeah, so, uh, so that's something we strive uh, towards as well. Yeah, yeah. All right, next question. The enemy spawn points in Towers of Thanos do create a means to the shield themselves. We mentioned this earlier, but I want to delve into detail now. So you'll be whacking away at this, this you know, hurling, hurling everything you got, setting it on fire, doing all sorts of things to destroy this terrible worm thing that's spitting out creatures onto you. Um, indiscriminately, I hasten to add. And as mm. it's doing so, um, you are really faced with uh, another foe or another sort of a change in form, so to speak, where the worm is desperately trying to defend itself against your onslaught and does a thing that's unexpected by shielding itself and then connecting these these, these maybe two, three, or maybe four rods of, of things shooting out from it. And those things are going to, could be a, like a, a cauldron or a, strange one-eyed being, all sorts of stuff. How did this come about? Why is that there? Yeah, um, so it started with the worms being the spawn points for the enemies. Uh, and at first, when we, we first did that, uh, we, we felt like, so at that point, the worms, that's all they did. They were spawning waves of enemies, and the waves of enemies were supposed to uh, defend the worm, uh, basically, right? Um, but we found that it was boring, <laughs> in a way. Right? Uh, when, once you get to the worm, uh, yeah. we felt like there should be a bit of a resistance there, uh, where it's um, like a very small bus, if I could say. Right? It's, it's an encounter in itself. Uh, so the worm shouldn't be static there and just watching you. So one way to go about, go about it, which we could have uh, made the worm uh, like an offensive being, right? Maybe they, they should have, uh, they could have thrown, uh, like, I don't know, nasty saliva at you or 
something like that. Uh, but yeah, we tried to to push the idea of it, of how that worm could be defend defending itself a bit further. And we we found a couple different mechanics we could play around with. Um, one of those is just simply spawning an elite kind of wave. Uh, so it's just a wave that is stronger. And that wave, instead of trying to destroy uh, the core, it will instead try to guard the worm. So once the once the, the health of the worm reaches about half, I think uh, it can change depending on the level you're playing, but uh, let's say half for the example, uh, that's when one of these behaviors will, uh, will be activated. So maybe the worm will spawn a, a wave of elite enemies. Uh, maybe it will be throwing uh, mortars at you and you have to dodge them while you're trying to, uh, to defeat the worm. Or uh, the one you just explained, which is uh, a bit more tricky, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, but yeah, the, the worm will be spawning uh, a couple buildings, not too far away, uh, but they are not so close to the worm, usually. Uh, and until these buildings are destroyed, uh, the worm is invincible. Um, and these buildings can do different things like spawn more enemies, uh, which can be annoying. Uh, you, they can uh, also attack you uh, in different ways. Um, and uh, or they can slow you down also. So one of them will, will do that. Um, and you will have to destroy these, these buildings. Uh, and meanwhile, the worm keeps on spawning these waves, right? So um, once you're, you've activated one of these behaviors, the worm is actually stronger than it was before. Uh, so if you reach that point, you really want to like push uh, to get it dealt with. Uh, and if you don't, uh, well, it can be, uh, yeah, you can have a bad time. Oh, yeah. The only way you're going to defeat the spawn point is by taking these things out while the yep. while it's spawning stuff. While you're defending tower, yeah, <laughs> there's 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 a lot to do. It's all about yeah. managing on what you know where you should be, where's the best place to be. Yeah, yeah. Be and so, sometimes you will uh, reach that point where right that worm is suddenly a bit stronger than it used to be, and you just realize, oh wait. Now I should be at the core because because the other front overrun uh, my defenses. So you will be tele teleporting back, like hoping that your teleportation, uh, by the time these enemies reach your core, you will have dealt with this situation and that your core is not uh, destroyed. Uh, yeah, the game has many ways to uh, to take over. Yeah. yeah. Last question then. Yeah. I want to talk about lighting and the art, well, the, the visual representation of what's going on in Tales of Thanos. It is an isometric view. It's not true isometric, but, you know, it's that view. <laughs> and um, it is what I love about the – it's very subtle, but I love it when you go into an area where you're getting close to a spawn point and the ground is covered in weird sort of like lichen and moss and bones and basically this corruption. And even the lighting goes slightly darker. Things get slightly dimmer. It's difficult yeah. to see. It's almost like dusk as you enter this space. 
and you you feel you don't belong there you know this is not your place your your being the creature you play is this glowing sort of like luminescent being that had no business being in this dark place but has to go otherwise this corruption will spread and yeah. um i just want you to talk me through the design of this and uh, how 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 have you felt cranking this up and that dial because you could have gone really quite far with this, but you don't. You just—it's quite subtle. But could you just talk us through the design process be- behind this? Yes. Yeah, so uh, it starts with the lore, I would say. Um, so there's this very big and uh, god in this world that is called Augur, and uh, he is corrupting the world taking control of uh, creatures, uh, of mythical creatures and corrupting them. Um, and he is the one controlling from a distance uh, these worms that are shooting uh, enemies at you, basically. Um, and so when Ogu takes control of one part of the map, uh, we wanted to uh, to illustrate that corruption. Uh, that's how we came about uh, this this dark goo uh, that you can uh, see on the map when uh, when a worm is there. Uh, it's also helpful as a uh, as a very obvious reminder that there's waves coming from that direction. Um, so it also has a, a bit of a gameplay uh, impact as well. And um, as for the the color choices and all these things. So I'm not on the art direction team, but one thing uh, that I found really interesting that I remember uh, them discussing uh, when we were talking about color choices uh, and it was relevant during the the corruption design uh, is that uh, there was a conscious choice in the colors that were uh, available to different parts of the game. So, for example, the, uh, the the very bright colors and the very, very dark colors are reserved for either UI or uh, VFX so that those can uh, stand out, basically. Uh, and everything that is in between uh, is also available to the UI and uh, VFX as well if they so choose, uh, but the extremes are re- very much forbidden basically for everything else. Um, and so that limits the colors that we can use for the corruption itself. Uh, and the reason and the reason for doing this uh, is to um, give room into the color space for elements to stand out, basically. Uh, so uh, because usually when something uh, deserves the player's attention, will usually be some kind of UI element or a VFX thing that just popped up. Uh, and these elements, by being by being allowed to use these extremes of the color spectrum, uh, will enable uh, the player to, to notice them more easily. It's something you don't really realize when, when you look at the screen, but those very flashy elements, your eyes are really... Uh, attracted to them. Uh, that's why in many level designs, they will create a, a dimly lit room. And then in the corner, you will see this very flash light. And oh, that's where I have to go, right? Um, 
and it's using the so here we are using the, the same principle uh but in a diff uh in a different way if i can see it this way it's not about telling you where to go in the map it's about uh guiding your eyes to the important elements in the screen basically um so yeah uh that's part of the idea uh there's improvements we can do there uh but we are uh, aware that it's uh, it's something we we want to do and to keep doing for the game but i think it works very well in tales of Thana. i think it uh it's it really does one of the many things i've kept on repeating myself in this interview has been about information tales of Thana is a great example of informing the player in my view Yes, there's more work mm -hmm. to do. We're just the transparency, everyone. Current time of recording this uh, this episode of the Sausage Factory, Towers of Thana is in fact in early access, so there's still work to be done. But yeah. at, at its core, um, there is an approach that is focused on informing the player and warning them, giving them all the information they need at that time. And uh, yeah. it's, a, it's a remarkable feat. I do applaud you and your team and keeping focused on that pillar because you're going to have to with a game like this. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, it's the, it's the core of it, right? It's, it's, a, the game is about overwhelming you with too much to do all at once. Uh, yes. And if you don't know what has to be done, it's hard for me uh, as a, as part of the design team yeah. to overwhelm you. Right. Uh, yeah. So I have to to have ways to communicate information, uh, and to be fair, there's there's still work to be done in, on that front. Uh, mm. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. But uh, you've come a long way. Yeah. So, Towers of Thana. It's been developed by Bishop Games. <clears throat> Could you tell me um, where does that name come from, Bishop Games? Oh, um, yeah. So. Yeah, we were, it was back in 2014, three friends trying to, to fund a game studio were just asking themselves, well, how should we call ourselves now? Um, trying to, to throw ideas left and right. And uh, as the tech inclined uh, founder, and I suppose that all of the founders would, would have a different uh, memory of that moment when we decided on the, on the name of the game, of the studio. Um, but one that really stood to me was that we really, or I really wanted to have a .com domain. <laughs> it was a deal breaker if we couldn't get it. Uh, and so we had a, so like Bishop Games was not our number one top idea, right? I don't recall a, a single one of them except a, a Red Spoon studio, but we didn't have the .com for that one. So uh, yeah, we just went <laughs> for, for another one. Uh, which ended up being Bishop Games. Um, and one of the things that we really liked about that game uh, is, and I think it still rings true today, is that uh, the Bishop is about the uh, the Bishop piece in the chess uh, game, uh, which, uh, well, we play very few games here. <laughs> Surprisingly, uh, we are not very big chess players. Uh but we still uh, enjoy the game uh, nonetheless. And we find that the the bishop piece itself is a bit different. I mean, I guess every piece is different. Uh, but this one plays only in diagonal. Um, and, and one particular we, color as well. Is it the black or is it the white diagonal? Yeah. 
and it, it can it can catch you out because you go, I'm not in check. You are now. Oh, bishop. There's a freaking bishop. It's, it's very yeah, easy from to far away. It's very, they're very far away. And actually, no, you can't move there. Why? Because the bishop's checking you. So that's what yeah. I thought it was about. It was about celebrating the bishop piece in chess. Yep. And saying, yeah, you know a, what? It's, it's not all about the rook, you know. <laughs> not exactly. And uh, we're, yeah, we are making our own path basically into the video game industry. Uh, I mean, I guess it's a bit, uh, everybody says that, but yeah, we, we felt like we wanted to do things a, a bit differently uh, than other experiences we had in the past, uh, which were, uh, there, there was good and there was bad. Uh, so we wanted to do our own way. And that's, we felt inspired by, by the bishop. And Towers of Thana is currently available on what platforms? Uh, on Steam only. Uh, it's very much about taking feedbacks uh, from the players, uh, learning what works, what works a bit less, uh, and improving, iterating, uh, and building some, uh, some momentum over time. Uh, and yeah, mm-hmm. hopefully at some point we, we bring the game uh, to the consoles as well. Uh, we should have uh, controller support in a very short time. Uh, so we will be ready for the consoles uh, if the time comes. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to that when it does eventually arrive. I'm very happy to talk to you, David, in its current stage because uh, you're clearly listening to the community and uh, you are, um, you've, throughout this interview, you've made mention of uh, you know, maybe they shouldn't die so often <laughs> in the first level. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But, uh, I found it a learning experience, you know, learn from your outcomes, but even still. David, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Genuinely has. You've been a great guest and uh, you're more than welcome to come back to talk about what next is uh, cooking in your collective brains. Because um, mm. We'll be here. Trust me, we'll be here. But uh, until then, thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Chris, for the invitation and... Uh... I'm happy to have spent uh, the last uh, couple of minutes with you uh, and the audience. You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Cane and Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash Cane and Rinse for early, extended and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube and at our website, caneandrinse.com. <laughs>